chances are a lot of the way you're living your life comes down to why you think God is looking for you. I, I've known people, and I've actually worshipped with people, a lot of people who have the idea that God is looking for somebody to punish. Have you ever, have you ever been in a church service like that? You walk out, and it sounds like after you heard the pastor, he, he sounds as if God is just out there looking for somebody that he can hammer. I believe that God is looking for people he can bless. It's just the opposite. God is looking for people that he can pour out his favor on. Now, someone will say from the very beginning, and I know depending upon your personality, some will say, well, I don't like positive thinking preaching, and I don't either. Positive thinking that isn't tied to the word of God is meaningless. But could we also agree that there's nothing spiritual about negative thinking preaching? Did we know that? See, a lot of people are, are just unhappy people, and they found theology as an umbrella to maintain their unhappiness. The fact of the matter is, God's word teaches that God is looking for people to bless. If God were looking for people to destroy, all he would have had to have done was shut off the lights after Adam and Eve pulled the fruit off the tree. He could have destroyed the world at that moment and punished everybody and been perfectly right to do so. But that's not God. God is looking for people to bless. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, the Bible said the eyes of the Lord move to and fro, back and forth, looking for people that he can strongly support whose hearts are completely his or whose hearts are fully committed to his, to him. So God is looking for people to bless. Now, depending upon your reaction to God, your life is the way it is. People who trust in the power of God live differently than people who don't trust in God's power. People who think that they have to make things happen in life just live a very different way than people who live trusting God. Now, you'll notice something. I'm not talking about saved people and lost people because there are a lot of people who have committed their soul to Jesus Christ, but they've never committed their day-to-day -day living to Christ. And even though they may be born again by God's Spirit, if they were to die, they'd go straight to heaven. Even though that's true, the fact of the matter is they live a life of unhappiness. So I just want to tell you right out of the box God is looking for people to bless. And those people who will have confidence in him are going to live different lives. We're talking about a guy by the name of Elisha in our series. It's generation two. Elisha is a prophet in Israel at a very bad time. God has brought him to prominence. He is a young man. He is following a great man named Elijah who did the same job. The good thing about Elisha is, as we said in the first sermon in this series, he has all of Elijah's power, but he doesn't have the baggage. One thing we're going to see over and over in the life of Elisha is he is a man who lives his life trusting God. He has complete confidence in God. We're also going to see a group of guys that the Bible calls the sons of the prophets or the young prophets. They would be like seminary students. And we know from our story here that there are at least 50 of them. They're saved, they're preachers, they're religious men, they have been studying, but unlike Elisha, they don't get it. Although they have committed their souls to God, they're not living in trust in God on a day-to-day -day basis. So what we're going to do for a little while, this is really not, uh, this is really not the sermon today. We're going to get to the story in just a few moments, but I want to take a little while just to show the difference between the life of someone who lives trusting God and the life of someone who lives on pins and needles all the time. Now, 
The thing about a person who lives trusting God, number one, is he lives life never seeing the need to panic. Take your Bibles and look at 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 15. When the group of prophets from Jericho saw what happened, time out, just a moment. Last week we saw how that God brought a chariot from heaven, picked up Elijah, and took him to heaven without Elijah ever having to die. So these prophets are on the other side of the Jordan River, and they're watching. Their mouths are wide open. When they saw what happened, they exclaimed, Elisha has become Elijah's successor. And they went to meet him and bowed down before him. Sir, they said, just say the word, and 50 of our strongest men will search the wilderness for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has left him on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha said, don't send them. But they kept urging him until he was embarrassed. And he finally said, all right, send them. So 50 men searched for three days but did not find Elijah. Elisha was still at Jericho when they returned. Didn't I tell you not to go, he said. Now, what happened here? Here's Elisha. He's trusting God. He's totally focused on God meeting his needs, but here are these other 50 preachers, and they're scared to death. And so after they both watch the same thing, and isn't it interesting, forgive me for breaking a sentence, isn't it interesting how that two people in the same family or in the same church can see God do the same thing, and they have totally different reactions based upon whether they trust God or they don't trust God. Elisha has just watched God come down in a chariot of fire and take his master to heaven. And the other guys saw the same thing. But they came to Elisha and they said, we're really worried about this thing. Because you just never know. Surely God just picked him up and dropped him someplace. And we need to go look for him. Sir, you know, here they are. I mean, I'm sure they had formed committees by this time. And they said, we got to go out and find Elijah. God probably dropped him somewhere. He's out there on a mountain somewhere. He's out there in a desert. And Elisha's over here. He's still rejoicing because he's seen this awesome miracle take place. And he said, guys, you don't need to do this. And they just kept on and kept on. And finally, Elisha was even embarrassed that he knew them. And he said, all right, go on. Have your committee. Make your search party. Go out. And they went out for three days. And they came back and said, you know, we just couldn't find him any place. That's the difference between people who live trusting God and people who don't live trusting God. These are all saved people. These are all believers. But Elisha is trusting God, and these guys are not trusting God. What's very interesting, and by the way, if, you, if all you get out of this morning's sermon is what I'm about to share with you, it was worth coming. Now, please don't leave after I tell you this, all right? But this is so powerful. You see this, what, what, what the prophets were saying, what these guys who didn't get it were saying. They were saying, we have to trust ourselves for what God can't do. See, they thought that God botched the job. God came down, picked up Elijah, and dropped him. And they said, we have to trust ourselves. We have to go out and find him and bring him back and nurse him back to health after that awful fall that he surely must have encountered. They said, we have to trust ourselves for what God can't do. There are a lot of us who are living just like that today. We know Christ. We're saved. But we're just saying, you know what, God's just not coming through for me and God's not doing this in my life. And since God just can't seem to handle this, I'm going to take this into my own hands and handle it myself. Elisha, on the other hand, had total different persuasion. Elisha trusted God for what he could not do. In every one of our lives on a daily basis, there are stuff that you and I can do. But there are things that we can't do. 
We have to understand, first of all, it is God who has given us the ability to do the things that we can do. Let us glorify God for that, but then let us get up off our backsides and do the things that we can do. Amen? You say, Pastor, I've lost my job, and I'm just going to sit here and wait for a job to come to me. And they're not. Listen, get up and go look for a job. God has given you that ability. If you can do it, you go do it. Trust God for that part that you can't do. Ask God for that interviewer that you're going to talk to to give you favor and to put blessing upon you and to give you the opportunity that you will deserve by your faithfulness. So think about this. Either you will say, I'm going to trust myself for what God can't do, or I'm going to trust God for what I can't do. There is a clear line between those two kinds of living, and you're on one side of that line or the other. Think about it. If you're one of those people who has to trust yourself for what God can't do, you're going to always be living in a panic because stuff is going to catch you by surprise, and you'll be like those prophets. God's going to drop me. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be bad. Somehow things are not going to work out for me, and I can't trust God, so i got to take things into my own hands and manipulate circumstances. So listen, if you live your life trusting God, you will never see a need to panic. Then, the wonderful thing about people who live trusting God is they become resourceful people who can rescue others. Now, I'm going to read a little while here. This is in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 38. Elisha now returned to Gilgal. But there was a famine in the land. And if you guys are going to do a little reading around the sermons I'm preaching, you'll discover there was a horrific famine in the land. So bad that there were even some who had resorted to cannibalism. It was awful. One day, as a group of prophets was seated before him, it's interesting, we seem to find these guys seated a lot. A group of prophets was seated before him. He, Elisha, said to his servant, put on a large kettle and make some stew for these men. Elisha said, I, I know there's a famine, but there's no reason to sit around hungry. Let's put on the big pot, let's put on the big kettle, and let's make some stew here. And so everybody kind of got into it. And verse 39, one of the young men went out into the field to gather vegetables and came back with a pocket full of wild gourds. He shredded them and put them into the kettle without realizing they were poisonous. You work with anybody like that? Do you have anybody like that on your team? I mean, you know, whatever they go out and do, they're, they're going to go out and, and think they're doing the right thing and just mess everything up. And so one of these young preachers, who you clearly would not want for your pastor, went out and was looking for some wild vegetables to put in the stew, and unfortunately he found some poisonous gourds. After the men, verse 40, had eaten a bite or two, they cried out, Man of God, there's poison in this stew. So they would not eat it. Elisha said, Bring me some flour. Then he threw it into the kettle and said, now it's all right, go ahead and eat. And it did not harm them. Next story, verse 42. One day a man from Baal Shalashai brought the man of God a sack of fresh grain, 20 loaves of barley bread made from the first grain of his harvest. Elisha said, give it to the group of prophets so they can eat. What? His servant exclaimed, feed 100 people with only this? But Elisha repeated, give it to the group of prophets so they can eat it. For the Lord says, there will be plenty for all. There will even be some left over. And sure enough, there was plenty for all and some left over just as the Lord had promised. Now, here's the thing. If you live your life trusting God, you're not going to live in a panic. God is going to take care of you. And the very next thing that's going to happen is you're going to become a resourceful person that will help other people get out of trouble. People are going to look at you as the go-to guy, as the go-to girl. They're going to look at you and say, this is the person to go to in a crisis. Because as you live trusting God, God will manifest himself, God will bless you, and other people will be drawn to your resourcefulness. 
Now, I have to tell you, there are many qualities I admire in, in human beings. But one of the greatest qualities I admire is resourcefulness. People that just have a, a knack for what to do when things are going wrong. I read this week about a woman who called 911 in Oregon. And uh, unfortunately, there was a problem. A man was breaking into her house. There was a problem with the 911 uh, dispatcher thing. She got a, a menu and realized it was going to take a long time to talk to somebody. And so finally she hung up the phone. There under the bed where she was, she had the phone book. She had a brilliant idea. She looked up Winchell's Donut Shop. And she called the Winchell's Donut Shop and said, is there a policeman in there? See what I mean? I like that. Resourcefulness. There were three of them in there. <laughs> now, if you live your life trusting God, and I'm not talking about a resourcefulness that you will have on your own, although God, I believe, will give you that gift, there will suddenly be something in your life that allows you to see good things happen when things are going badly. One of my heroes, in fact, I should tell you, all of my heroes pretty much growing up were pastors. Every day of my life has been spent in a pastor's home. And I, I res my dad taught me, and I learned to respect men of God, and they're my heroes. But one of my heroes was a cowboy, a Dallas cowboy. It, his name was Tom Landry. Tom Landry coached the Dallas Cowboys for almost 30 years. But more than a coach, Tom Landry was a great man of God and a great man. At his funeral, one by one of the Dallas Cowboy players who had played for him, some of whom did not like him when they played for him, stood up and said, Tom Landry didn't just teach me how to be a football player. He said, Tom Landry taught me how to be a man. And many of them said, Tom Landry brought me to Jesus Christ. He was a great man and resourceful throughout his life. And he had great confidence in God. When his daughter Lisa died with cancer, he had wonderful confidence in God. And when Tom got leukemia, uh, and I had the privilege of seeing him and talking with him just a little while before he, was, before he got really sick. And when I stood there and talked to him, he was excited about the fact that we were building this building. And he asked me so many questions about this building and what God was doing in our church. When he got leukemia, his pastor said that when he went to see Tom Landry, that Landry did more to build him up than he did to help Landry. And he helped many people in God's work. Landry helped a lot of students at Dallas Seminary who were studying to be pastors. When he had friends who went through hard times, he paid their kids tuition in Christian schools. But throughout his life, he had a resourcefulness. It showed up on the football field, but it showed up long before that. Many, many years ago, I was reading a biography of Tom Landry. Landry was in the Army Air Corps during World War II. He was flying, I think it was a B-29. And there came a time when the engine shut down. And all on board were getting ready to bail out over Germany. And right before the first guy jumped out the door, Landry said, it came to me that the fuel mixture might not be right. And he turned the fuel mixture knob on the, in the cockpit and the engines fired back up and none of those guys jumped out. And I thought, there is a story of a man, not a preacher, uh, in a secular world who throughout his life had confidence in God and he became a resourceful person that other people look to for help in difficult times. And I'm saying that that's what God wants from every one of us. Remember, God is looking for people to bless. He's not looking for people to damage. He's looking for people whose hearts are fully committed to him. Why? So that they won't live in a panic and so that they can become resourceful people who can be a blessing to others. Now that's just introduction. I haven't even gotten to the sermon yet. 
really haven't gotten to the story that this is all about. So if you have your Bibles, look in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll begin our story. One day, the widow of one of Elisha's fellow prophets came to Elisha and cried out to him, My husband who served you is dead, and you know he feared the Lord, but now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. Lesson one, going through bad times does not mean that God is against you. One of the great issues of people today that follow Jesus Christ is we have so much knowledge in the scripture that we believe we can know everything. I'm thankful that we've learned so much more about the Bible in our times. We have Christian radio, Christian television, Bible studies. We have many translations of the scripture. There are so many helps for us to study the Bible. A little problem, though, developed in this growth of Bible knowledge, and that's the idea that somehow we can know everything. Beloved, we don't know everything. The Bible says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. If you get into God's word, you can know what is written here is true. Every word of it is true. But there are going to be some things that will happen in your life that you will not know the answer why. And if you stress over that, oftentimes it will lead you down the wrong path. I know many good Christians who go through bad times in their lives and they're thinking, surely I must have done something wrong. What awful thing did I do for God to get back at me like this? If we learn anything from the story, the verse that I just read, it's just that when Christians go through bad times, it does not mean that God is against them. Hey, this woman was a preacher's wife. And she said to Elisha, you know my husband feared the Lord. He worked with you. He was your teammate. He wasn't one of these ungodly people in Israel that are living in sin. She said, my husband was a good man. Friends, someday you and I are going to go through a crisis. Be sure not to ask your pastor or a spiritual leader in your life, why did this thing happen to me? Because I want to tell you as a pastor, I do not know why bad things happen. And I'm embarrassed to tell you that a few times I've tried to guess. But when it gets right down to it, we just don't know many times why bad things happen to God's people. We live in a sin-cursed world. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they ushered all kinds of bad things into our world. And the Bible says life is short and it's full of difficulty. So why do bad things happen? I don't know. Did you notice that when this widow came into contact with Elisha, she did not ask him, Sir, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Because, see, whenever bad things happen in your life, the question is not why did it happen. The question is what next? Where do we go from here? What is the next thing to do? Because, see, Elisha and this woman, they could have sat down. They could have cried with each other. And they could have said, oh, I don't know why God did this awful thing. And Elisha could have come up with several ideas of maybe why God did this. But they didn't do that because that would have been an absolute waste of time. They were in a crisis. This lady owed money. Her husband had taken on debt. And in those days, there was no bankruptcy. The creditor was coming to take her two sons to be slaves. This was no time to sit around and wonder why. Why things fell apart the question to ask was what next 
and I don't know that I've got the time or the wisdom to really flesh out for you what I want to say next, but let me just give you this and see if the Holy Spirit will help you. If you associate serving God with blessing and getting away from God to trouble, you are correct. Those, th- those things are associated. If you serve God, God will bless you. If you run from God, you will have trouble. Sure as the sparks fly upward. That's a fact. The problem is you can't always associate what's going on right now with those two principles. Because, see, you may be serving God and going through trouble. You may be running from God and everything will be going well. So the question is not what are you doing right now or how are things going right now. The question is what are you headed for? If you're serving God, you are headed for blessing. You may have troubles right now, but you are headed for good things. If you are running from God, everything may be going okay, but you are headed for trouble. In the book of Acts, late in the book, there's a ship that's about to sail, and Paul is going to be on the ship as a prisoner. And the Holy Spirit warns Paul that there's going to be a disastrous storm. And Paul says to the ship owner and to the captain, please don't sail. There's going to be all kinds of problems and loss of life. And the the ship owner needed to get the cargo to port. And the captain said, I don't see any reason not to sail because the weather was nice. The Bible talks about the south wind blowing softly. It felt good. And they said, we don't care what God says. We're going to go ahead and sail. Now, I've talked to many people through the years. Everything seemed to be going okay. You know, I'm leaving my husband. I found some man that I like better. And Pastor, don't worry about me. Everything's going great. My kids just love him. And it's just a wonderful thing. Don't worry. I know I'm not doing what God wants me to do, but everything's going to be okay. It feels so good. Pastor, I found some woman that I like better, and I'm just going to leave my wife. Or, or Pastor, I know this isn't right, but I, I've got, I'm going to cheat, but everything's going okay. Listen to me. If you're not serving God, you're headed for trouble. If you are serving God, you're headed for blessing. So all I'm saying right now is be careful how you evaluate your current situation because you can be serving God going through trouble, but you're headed for blessing. You can be running from God and experiencing pleasant things, and you're headed for trouble. The question is not what are you feeling now, but what are you headed for? So what do we learn from this story? The first thing that we learn is that bad times don't necessarily mean that God is against us. In fact, oftentimes, it's a time of testing for God to show himself strong. Look at verse 2. What can I do to help you, Elisha asked. Tell me, what do you have in the house? Nothing at all except a flask of olive oil, she replied. Now, in my Bible, or in my notes, I have the question underlined, what do you have in the house? Let me ask you a question today. How would you define living in God's favor. If God's favor rained down upon you, how would you see living under God's favor? How would you envision it? Give it to me in practical terms. You say, well, Mark, I'd be out of debt, and I'd, I'd have a, a reasonably good marriage and, and a good, fairly good relationship with my kids, and I'd have some nice things, and I'd be f- effective in my life, and I'd be living a life of purpose, and I would know when I got up in the morning that my life had meaning. That's what it would look like for me to live under the favor of God. Or you may have another definition. Now, here's what I want you to understand. You will not jump from living in difficulty to living under God's favor. It's not like it's just going to click for you. One morning, you're going to be living the life that you dream of living. Because ultimately, what matters is that we are in God's will and blessed with the blessings that God wants us to have. But here's the issue. 
Anybody who wants to live in God's favor will discover this, that the first thing God requires from you is that you are willing to let him have what you do have. And when you let God have what you have already, you say, Mark, I don't have much. But if you're willing to trust God with that, then you can move toward living in a life of favor. There are so many people who say, you know what, Pastor, I don't have any time. But if God would bless me with a different job, then I'd have more time and I would start serving God and I'd start doing all kinds of things. What about the time you have right now? Maybe you are stressed to the breaking point. But what about giving God some of the time that you have right now? You say, Mark, if I made a million dollars a year, I'd give God the tenth. I'd just make $10,000 a year. But what about what you have right now? See, when Elisha talked to this woman, they had a great need. Obviously, all she had was a little flask of oil in the house, and that oil was not enough to pay her debts. If it was, she would never have had to bother the prophet. But interesting, Elisha asked her, what do you have right now that you are willing to trust God with? If you want to live under the favor of God today, and I think all of us do, you must start with this one question. What do I have now that I'm willing to trust God with? Am I willing to make God the owner of everything that I have and myself just a steward? When I'm not making the money I want to make, if I don't have the kind of job I want to have, if I'm not doing the things in life that I really want to do, am I willing to make God Lord of my life over what I have right now? Beware of any kind of thinking that says, I will make God Lord of my life when? Jesus will rule my life at this point somewhere down in the future. Elisha asked her, what do you have in the house right now that you're willing to trust God with? Well, look at verse 3. Elisha said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Do you believe that God has the ability to make good things happen in your life? I believe that. I have lived my life watching God bring blessings into my life. That's going to happen in this story. This lady is going to do something. I'm giving the story away in a moment. She's going to take that little flask of oil that she has with all the empty jars that she's collected, and when she starts pouring oil into the first jar, an amazing physical thing is going to happen. A miracle is going to happen. The oil will just keep pouring until that jar is full. She'll go to the next jar and fill that jar until it's full, and that oil will keep pouring until the last empty jar is collected. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you, when this lady, Sarah, whatever her name was, when she went out collecting empty jars, she was setting the goals of her life. Here in this room today, there are people who dream great dreams, and there are people who dream small dreams. And you say, Mark, I don't know about this dream kind of thing. I don't know about having goals. Listen to me. If you have confidence in God, your dream should be as big as you believe your God is. If you have a great God, you should have great goals. Don't let theology become an excuse for setting small goals. Well, I just want whatever God wants me to have. Well, absolutely, we all do, but he's a great God. Why should we say, oh, I just want to have what God wants me to have? Why don't we back off with this inflection and say, I want everything God wants me to have. Our God is an awesome God. Listen to me. I don't believe in positive thinking theology, but I don't believe in negative thinking theology either. 
It's time for us to get lined up with the word of God. Our God is a great God. I'm not talking about financial riches. You may never get rich. I'm not talking about fame. You probably wouldn't want to be famous if you encountered fame. I'm talking about having a life where great things happen that only God can explain. Every one of us ought to have great dreams and great visions of seeing God doing awesome things in our life. Dream as big as you believe your God is. Then next, look at verse 4. Elisha said, then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jar, setting the jars aside as they are filled. Verse 5, I have this underlined. So she did as she was told. Look at that. She did as she was told. Her sons brought many jars to her, and she filled one after another. Soon every container was full to the brim. Do you want to live a life of blessings? A life of blessings begins with respect for God's plan. This was a crazy plan. If Elisha had told this woman to go borrow oil, that would have made sense. If he had told her to go out and get a consolidation loan, nothing wrong with that if you have. But if he had told her to get a consolidation loan, that would have made sense. He said to this woman, here's what I want you to do. Go out and borrow empty jars. Now, on a human level, if you're this woman, you're thinking to yourself, buddy, if there's one thing I've got in my house, it's empty stuff. You want me to get empty jars? But that was God's plan. So what did she do? She just did what God asked her to do. Now, I'm not talking about being unsaved or being saved. We'll talk about that in a few moments. I want to tell you today that even among believers in Jesus Christ, there are two kinds of people. There are those who live life according to their plans, and there are those who are surrendered to God's plans. You and I are in one of those two situations. We have either said by our actions, God, I'm in control of my life, and I have to trust myself for what you can't handle. So I'm going to do my life by my plans. I'm going to accept salvation. I'm going to receive Jesus as my Savior. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. But I want to call a place. You're either living like that or you're saying, God, I don't know what we're going to do today, but I'm going to follow your plan. Whatever you want for me, that's what I want. Now, if you want to live a life of blessing, it begins with surrendering to God's plan for your lives. You say, Pastor, I don't think I like that very much because surrendering, that doesn't sound very good. That sounds like losing. I was thinking about this this week, and suddenly I got a very good illustration for the point that I need to make right now. I drive a Honda Accord. This is my second Honda. I absolutely love Hondas. My wife has a Honda van. My lawnmower is a Honda. Everything in my garage is a Honda. This is not, a, this is not a, a, a advertising for Honda. It's just, that's just me. I think it's Honda. I love it. the best $20,000 car out there. Love Hondas. Now, for most of the time the Honda was in business, they made their product in Japan. Now, my vehicles are made in Ohio, but for most of the time that Honda made vehicles, it was a Japanese company. What's the history of Japan as an economic power? They were pretty much a feudal country until World War II. They were a mess. They were not known for great engineering. They were not known for great manufacturing. But in 1945, an emissary of the nation of Japan signed an unconditional surrender to the United States. And the President of the United States sent a very resourceful man, a general, to Japan named Doug MacArthur. 
Now, Douglas MacArthur was a great general. But if you want to study the greatest thing he did in his life, you look at how he led in the rebuilding of Japan as an economy. And after, after 50 years, they now have one of the most powerful economies in the world, and their products are known for mechanical and engineering excellence. But it began with a surrender to wisdom and surrender to a new plan. And fortunately for Japan, surrender, and I know this can be politically incorrect for some of you who lean a little bit to the left, but it's just a fact. What I want you to see, it, it began, their success began with a surrender to a benevolent power who had good wishes for them. Now you and I are not Japan, and God is not Douglas MacArthur. Our God is an awesome God. He is a perfect God, and he never fails. What I'm saying to you is if you want to get to the place of blessing, if you want to get to the place of greatness, if you want to get to the place of being effective and strong, surrender your plan to God's plan. Turn yourself into God and say, God, I don't know how to run my life. I love this about this lady. Look one more time at the text in verse 5. The Bible says she did what she was told. Well, let's look at the next thing. Look at the middle of verse 6. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, Now sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and there will be enough money left over to support you and your sons. You ready for this? I've preached the whole sermon to get to this one line. Every person living in the will of God, trusting him, is functioning with unlimited resources. Do you realize that today? If you live your life trusting God, you are functioning with unlimited resources so that you can never come to a place in life where you need to do something and you come up with these two words. I can't. Do you realize that? If you're living your life trusting God, you will never come to a place where you need to do something and have to say, I can't, because you are yoked up with God, and the moment that you are tied with God, you're functioning with unlimited resources. Now, by myself, financially, I can get to the end of my checking account real quick, okay? How many are like that? I mean, it wouldn't take very long to exhaust your resources. You can say, that's it, boy, that's the end of the money. month may still be there, but it's the end of the money. Suppose that somehow I got a joint checking account with Bill Gates. What does he have now, $44 billion? Now, you know what, if Bill said to me, hey, Mark, listen, I know you're just a pastor and not a real good pastor at that, and, and I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm just going to link up with you, and we're going to join our accounts, and you can just write checks off my account. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Now, I'm not telling you that you can just write checks, and, and I'm not talking about name it and claim it and, you know, blab it and grab it and fake it till you make it kind of religion. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is if you will join with God and trust him, you will begin to function with unlimited resources so that you will never come to a place in your life where you will say, I need to do this, need to do it, but I can't. You say, Mark, are you sure? Listen to what the Bible says in Philippians 4.19. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. I love what Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 29. He said, don't worry about food, what to eat and drink. Don't worry whether God will provide it for you. 
These things dominate the thoughts of most people. But your Father already knows your needs. He will give you all you need from day to day if you make the kingdom of God your primary concern. Did you hear that? Jesus is saying, if you will make God's plan your primary concern, God is saying, I will meet all your needs. And listen to the language of Jesus' statement. He said this kind of stuff just dominates the thoughts of people today, doesn't it? Well, I don't have this, but I need to. I want this, but I don't have it. This is the kind of stuff that dominates the thinking of most people. Jesus said, if you will make the kingdom of God your primary concern, Christ said, God will supply all your needs. I'm sure, standing before this crowd in the second service, that I'm standing before people who have a lot of issues. You have a lot of struggles in your life. You may go through some tough times, because remember, tough times don't mean that God doesn't love you. you got to think about where you're headed. But I learned something a long time ago. I came across some words that changed my way of looking at life, and I want to close this sermon with them today. For those of you who choose to live your life like Elisha, trusting God, you can say these words. Anything God has done anywhere, he can do here. Anything God has done anytime, he can do now. And anything God has done for anybody, he can do for me. Maybe it's time for us to crawl out from under the debris of a life that's been lived by our own plans and to step up to a life that's lived with the power and the blessings of Almighty God because never forget, God is looking for people he can bless. Would you stand with me, please?